Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys, uh, Aaron Finkelstein, who is both the managing attorney and has been with the firm for, I think, over 14 years and has a, almost 20 years of immigration law experience. And Brian Green, who's been, who just reminded me as I was talking to him earlier that he's been with the firm about six years and has maybe 10 or 15 years experience as an attorney. So clearly, we have very, very smart, knowledgeable people on our team. And we are so pleased and excited to share with you the topic, which is strategies for visa approvals at U.S. consulates. As many of us know as employers, our employees think they're going home for a two-week or three-week vacation uh, if the home country consulate uh, happens to be India, or for that matter, most other consulates around the world. Uh, and then they end up getting very often what's called a 221G, which is called a soft denial or a soft delay. It's called a soft denial, but basically it could end up where the person either gets has a delay in the visa issuance, in the worst case scenario, a denial, or sometimes a revocation of the H-1B or L-1 petitions. So in today's teleconference, we will discuss um, and throw some light on the different options available, what we are seeing as trends, the potential problems, the kinds of questions to expect from the consular officer uh, at U.S. consulates, uh, so that hopefully you can bring your valued employees back to work with your company so that you can continue to focus on doing good work and making a living and paying taxes, which is what the government wants us to do, uh, so that they can get their payrolls, I guess. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Brian, if you don't mind. What have you found as the recent trends and some of the problems for visa applicants um, and their employers? Thank you, Shiva. I think one of the trends that unfortunately has not uh, changed in the last couple of years is the use of the 221G by U.S. consul officers, sometimes to ask for more information, but other times it may be that they are delaying the case to do additional investigation of an employer, investigation of an employee, but the fact remains that when a 221G is issued, that H-1B worker, or it could be in another category, that person is not going to get their visa. It is a denial, as you said, a soft denial, and, and the way I approach it is that denial is a chance for you to get the approval for up to one year from the date of the 221G issuance. So I think it's important for employers to try to get ahead of those 221Gs and try to think about what would go into the petition to avoid it. But when it happens, I think they should talk to a qualified attorney and react quickly. You're saying it could take a year for the process to get resolved? Yeah. The 221G means that the H-1B case or the other visa could be approved for up to one year afterwards. After one year, the case is denied and the person has to reapply and have a new visa interview. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Aaron, so what are the specific kinds of issues or problems that we are noticing with the H-1B visa applicants? Well, as Brian mentioned, the 221G denials do happen for H-1Bs, especially with consultants and especially we see with the consulates in India. Uh, one reason or one example for the 221G denial could simply be mismatched information. So the information that's presented in the I-129 petition and all the documentation which had been presented to immigration is different than the information and the details that are being provided by the consultant when it's presented to the consulate. If such a thing happens, they'll issue a 221G. They also may send the petition back for a revocation to the USCIS. 
if they send the petition back for revocation to the USCIS, the USCIS will assess that petition, and they'll either look at it and say, okay, there are some issues here, we think there's a problem, in which case they'll issue a notice of intent to revoke, or in the alternative, uh, if they see that it's an approvable petition, they'll go ahead and they'll reaffirm it. If the USCIS does reaffirm it, uh, essentially that's making that petition so much stronger. So when you go and represent it to the consulate overseas, the consulate will, in effect, have a much harder time trying to not approve it at that point. Okay, thank you for that update and that information, Aaron. Um, so, Brian, in cases where it is sent back for revocation, uh, is it easy to somehow or is it possible to try and track this and somehow intercept it, try to expedite getting it back so that the employer can respond to the revocation notice faster? Because that is extremely frustrating because the process can end up taking a year or two. It is frustrating. It is possible to try to track where the petition is. It may have been at the U.S. Consulate in Chennai. It may be heading back to Vermont Service Center. But along the way, it stops off at the U.S. Uh, Department of State's Kentucky Consular Center. And the, the real problem here is that there's no pressure on the Department of State or USAS to get this through the pipeline quickly, there's no premium processing. You can't pay money and have it expedited. But what we have found is that you can try to contact the U.S. State Department and see where is it at. And you could also try to contact USAS. But we, we've had some success in special cases making informal requests to have the cases move faster. And sometimes you might be able to get the case back to the, the service center maybe in four to six months. And one way you can expedite things is by when you receive the notice of intent to revoke, should it happen, responding with a very thorough response and doing it very quickly can help you get it back out. But it's, it's a process where that worker won't be available probably for six months to a year. Well, that's pretty tough and difficult for an employer to hear that you're going to be stuck without having a valued employee on your team. That's part of our bread and butter as employers, especially if you're consulting companies or any other employer for that matter, to lose a valued employee and then to be told uh, they're going to be stuck for six months or a year. It affects the payroll. It affects the business. It affects everything uh, for the business. And it's, I guess there's a glimmer of hope when you say that through internal processes at the Murthy Law Firm that we have been successful in trying to um, move the um, petition along, uh, move the request, the revocation request to come in earlier so that we can respond to it and hopefully uh, obtain the approval. Um, and, and challenge them and, and show them proof, yeah. Or you also need to look at why was it sent back. If it's a reason that the consular officer just made a mistake, you want to fight that. But if there's a problem, and I think Aaron might talk about this later, if there's a problem where something wasn't revealed or a mid-vendor wasn't disclosed, that may not you may not be able to get around that. You may need to do a new HME petition at that point. It might be a lot faster and maybe more realistic. Well, it seems like everything is about increasing the fees, reducing the service, giving our poor companies and clients a hard time. And I guess, maybe, you know, in, in, in it's just the way, it's the reality. It's probably part of it is the economy. Part of it is them thinking they're be protecting, um, you know, being more careful with the U.S. borders and security and all of the reasons that consular officers, and they think that they're doing their job, that they're monitoring the reasons for the H-1 petition. And if they feel something is amiss, that it's their job to review. It. So have consular officers, Aaron, been given expanded powers to revoke or cancel visas? I mean, what's the story on that? 
You know, it's a it's a great question, and and the the funny thing is, well, not so funny, but it used to be where you could go to the consulate if you were an H four or an L two or perhaps an F two, the derivatives, and you'd present your case, and they'd look at your case on their own the merits, and they'd either approve it or not approve it based on what was being presented. But if the primary, the principal, the H1, the L1, the F1 had already been issued the visa and they were already in the United States, for example, they wouldn't reach beyond that adjudication to take any action to disrupt the visa that had already been issued. Now they have something called INA 221I. And essentially what they can do is if they're looking at the H4 or the L2 or the F2 as an example, they can reach beyond just that adjudication and they can say, hey, we have a problem with the H4 because we don't exactly agree that the primary is performing the job that he's supposed to be performing. We're going to reach out even though he's in the U.S. and we're going to revoke and cancel his visa also. Now, this can create two kind of problems. First of all, the spouse is sitting out of the country. They can't get in. And the principal, the primary, is in the U.S. He's going to have to come back or she's going to have to come back, not to be sexist, to present the case to the consulate. And now that that person no longer has a visa, if they're not able to prove their case, they're going to have a lot of difficulty being able to get back into the U.S. That's pretty scary, and it's kind of troubling because now you have sometimes the husband and wife separated, though potentially the 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 party, if it's the H1 or the H4, could decide to stay back, but I guess it wouldn't behoove well for the marriage on a long-term basis, um, and so it kind of complicates issues. So in terms of advice for H1B applications, you know, wh- Brian, what would you advise in terms as a strategy to increase the chances for H1B approvals by employers? I think in the, the age where different parts of the government are sharing information more frequently and more thoroughly, I think employers have to, again, get ahead of, of the problem and try to disclose every part of, say, the contractual relationships for an end client situation. Try to provide as much information as possible in the clearest way possible because if they're, say, a mid-vendor or someone's not disclosed, when your, your employee goes for that visa interview, if they say, oh, there's just two layers, and in fact, there's an FDNS report saying that they have visited and there's another layer, that's a reason to return the HME petition and get into that black hole of one year we talked about. So I think we have to realize that the Department of State has access to DHS records, USCIS records, CBP records, U.S. Department of Labor records. They have more information than we probably realize, and we have to just be very thorough and very forthcoming. Fantastic. And what do you mean when you say we have to be very well documented? I, I think that <clears throat> if you, if there's any possibility that the cons officer may misunderstand or not, not, I guess, get that business model, because some cons officers, they rotate very frequently, they may not understand the H-1B business model or especially the consulting model where there are different contractual layers. I think you need to lay that out that way so that maybe someone who's doing their first or second H-1B adjudication at a consulate can understand it. And then, as I think Aaron will talk about later, the, the employee has to understand these details and be able to explain them verbally. Okay. So I guess coming to you, Aaron, in terms of the actual documentation preparation, you know, does consistency matter and why should it matter and why is it important to be accurate and detailed oriented? Okay. So, so yes, it absolutely matters. Uh, I want to just jump onto something that Brian said about consistency and about read about the 
uh, person who the applicant who's applying for the visa at the consulate, one thing that I always recommend to people who are going for their visa interviews is to actually read the petition and read the documentation that the lawyer has provided them. Because many times you may know your job, but the way the lawyer put the job together and the way the lawyer perceives your job is just different. And what may be two different ways of saying something, two different terminologies, two different things, that may be enough for them to key in or for a red flag to go up inappropriately, but a red flag is a red flag, and that may be enough to create a problem. If there's an inconsistency, so they're going to look to clarify that inconsistency. If there is um, something that doesn't make 100% sense to them, they're going to look to clarify that which doesn't make sense to them. If it's an omission, it's a little bit easier with an explanation, but not necessarily overcomable. But if it's a clear contradiction, uh, that absolutely can result in a 221G and can result in a uh, substantial delay, if not an ultimate denial of your case. Okay, and so did you touch upon the accuracy and the de being detail-oriented? Well, for example, if the consular officer finds contradictory information about work sites, uh, your company, or your company's services online, it may lead to the, to the same three, to, to three possible negative ac outcomes, either a 221G request for information, a 221G, which is not requesting information, but giving them time to do additional investigation to make their own determination, or having the H-1B petition being returned to the CIS through the Kentucky Consular Center, as Brian had indicated before. Oh, my God. Gosh, Aaron, that sounds like bad, worse, and worst. Three bad scenarios If, from an employer's point of view. If I was told, your employee, I'm either going to send you for more information or I'm planning to delay it or actually, actually outright revoke or deny it, I'd be like really annoyed and upset, especially if I felt it was unjustified, as happens in quite a few cases. So what are the other sp potential strategies for a successful H-1B visa application, Brian? In short, having the fewest number of layers between your company as the employer and the end client is going to make it easier to gain approvals for H-1B workers, or maybe it will reduce the amount of delays when the, the consulates or the State Department is checking up to verify these details that Aaron's talking about. Okay, and why, why is the issue of the layers such a big problem? I think since we've had the, the Donald Neufeld memo issued in, in early 2009, there's been this sense in, I think, in the USCIS first, but eventually with the, the State Department, that if there are too many layers, if there's less proximity between the employer and their worker, somehow this is not fair or that the H-1B employer is not able to control the day-to-day -day work of that H-1B worker, and we all know in our industry and, and working with consulting companies that you do monitor your workers and you are responsible for them. You're paying their salaries. You have this control. But to a young consular officer you know, in Mumbai, it may not be so easy for them to understand. So if it was, say, a direct client relationship, I think it's pretty easy to prove it. If there's one layer and you have the letters and the documents, that the work orders showing this with details about what the work is going to be done and who's supervising, that's I think easier, but as you have more layers and more people involved, I think it may either lead to those delays where they check, or it just may be harder for the consul officer to say, yeah, you're going to control this worker when they're based in Seattle and you're in New Jersey. Okay, th thank you, Brian. Just point of clarification, uh, when Brian said early 2009, I know we lose track of time, it's actually January 2010. 
um, I believe it's January 10, 2010, but I know it feels like a long time, it so it's understandable because it has been a, certainly an onerous responsibility and burden for immigration uh, office for for the consulates. And by the way, the consulates are simply following the trend because they look to USCIS uh, as the main governing agency providing services. And so if USCIS becomes strict, they feel it's their responsibility to, to take out the magnifying glass and look at it very, very carefully. So, Aaron, what can an employer possibly do to prepare and really try to meet the ability to control or the control test that they are actually controlling their H-1 employees? One of the most direct and straightforward things that you can do is to try to get access to the work site, to the work location, and to be able to actually go and visit or to have some kind of direct contact with the end client location so that when there's a question that would come up about what kind of contact, what type of oversight, what's going on, you'll be able to answer that question directly. I think that's something that really, really helps. And what happens if the mid-vendors or end clients, uh, as can often happen, absolutely will refuse either to identify themselves or provide the required paperwork or documentation, et cetera? So if the mid-client or end-client fails to provide the required documentation and it's discovered during an investigation and you fail to disclose it, it can be perceived as new information. One of the things about H-1Bs is that H-1B is a specialty occupation, so you have to show that the job duties are one that requires a person with that specialized degree who has the ability to perform the job. If you start showing that there are that there are mid vendors and um, mid vendors, prime vendors, and clients, people that the employer is not aware of, it can cast doubt as to what the bona fide job duties are, and potentially a question as to whether the H-1B should have been approved can lead to 221Gs, can lead to ultimate denials, or the case being sent back for revocation. Okay. And Brian, how important is it for the employer to be familiar, and for the employee rather, because we've talked, I know Aaron touched upon it, I guess both the employer and the employee need to be familiar with the H-1B petition, but in particular for the employee to really review it and have a very good understanding before going for the H-1B visa or the L-1 visa interview. It's critical. I think that people have to keep in mind, employers have to keep in mind, that the consular interview may be two or three minutes at a window. And if the worker is nervous, if they haven't been in this role before at this job, the consular officer is expecting this person in two or three sentences to be able to explain, yes, I'm going to work in Peoria, Illinois. I'll be a systems analyst working on the GoReady software package. They really want to see it as a person you know, is their body language indicating there's a problem? But beyond that, do they understand who is their manager? What's their job? And it may be that the, you know, the LCA, the H-1B shows systems analysts, but they have, may have in their mind their role is a different description of that job. And those type of, of discrepancies, as Aaron said, if, they, if the consular officer sees there's something that doesn't match, that's the excuse to issue the 221G and look into it more closely and the delay begins. If the employee is ready and has these details in their mind and feels confident, they may get the H-1B issued the same day or the next day. I mean, it seems like common sense to most of us that you would obviously read the paperwork and petitions that deal with your file and with you and your family's ability to go live in a new country 
or continue to live in a country if you're switching from like a student status to an H-1 and really get familiar with the documents so that there's no, as both Aaron and Brian have pointed out, mismatch in the terminology or in the concepts so that we're all speaking with one voice. And even though it may seem so basic and so much, such basic common sense, for whatever reason, people get busy or stressed or nervous. They don't actually read, and then they end up uh, arriving at the interview. And then when you look nervous or scared or fumble, it's almost like they pounce on you because they feel like you have something to hide when you act guilty and sheepish and have this look like, uh, ouch, I'm not sure I'm using the right words. Right. So I think it's a very, very good point. And what if it is this person's first H-1B visa? I think one thing we're seeing more now, especially with the STEM extensions, is that employers are, are taking advantage of this wonderful program where they can have someone work for 29 months. And during that time, these workers who, you, who are finishing up their master's degree, say, they can do work that is not necessarily a specialty occupation job. They may have a mixture of job duties that are more basic, and as they advance, the employer may say, I like you, I want to sponsor you for H-1B. If they're not careful, if that worker is not prepared, as you said, and has reviewed the H-1B petition closely, they may describe job duties that are not specialty occupation work, or that may be different than what the attorney and the employer put together to get the approval from CIS, and that can also lead to this denial or the delay. So I think with a new em employee that's never had an H-1B interview before, I think it's critical, again, that they be very familiar, and maybe the employer and the lawyer talk to the worker before they go for the interview and go over these issues. Okay. And what if the employee has had one or more H-1 visas issued in the past? Does that actually help a lot? It used to. I think people used to take comfort, oh, I've had four H-1Bs, I'm on my seventh year extension. I think now with the, especially the consulates in India being a lot tougher, I don't think anyone can take it for granted that every visa interview is a new interview. It's a new look at it, new consular officers, people rotating. So I don't think there's any reassurance that you have an easier time getting a third or fourth H-1B approval. Okay. Well, okay. Sorry, Aaron. Oh, I just wanted to jump in just with one thing is you have to always remember the consulate officers are not necessarily uh, masters in computer information systems, masters in computer science and engineering. They're usually people that are very smart, savvy people, but not necessarily technically savvy people. So if you're coming and you're saying software engineer and somebody's saying software developer on a piece of paper, that could be something where they start to say, hmm, is it the same thing? Terms that you would think are interchangeable because they're not in the field, they're not in the industry, are not interchangeable with, uh, to them. So even something as simple as that, for that reason, it's really important to know the petition, know the documents, know what you're presenting to make sure you're using that consistent terminology. I think that's a very good point. And I think I, I tell people all the time, and that's how at least I like to look at it and prepare a case, is put myself in the shoes, put yourself in the shoes of the immigration officer or the consular officer think that, you know what, they feel that they are being loyal and good to the United States by denying or delaying a visa because they're protecting the U.S. worker or they're securing the border or they're preventing fraud. Put yourself in their shoes and try to look at things from their perspective and then try to go in better prepared for yourself as the employer, for your employees when you tell them when how to interact when they're going for the H-1B 
visa or the L1 visa. And talking about L1 visa, let's change gears because although the H1 and the L1B are very similar in terms of the fact that the L1B is for specialized knowledge workers, which is very, very similar, except we all know there are huge differences between the H and the L because one does is not subject to the quota and there's no prevailing wage and there's no LCA requirement. But after the 2004, the Visa Reform Act, we know that L-1Bs ended up with very similar scrutiny, if not even greater scrutiny, than the H-1B visa program. So what are some of the issues that come up uh, during L-1 visa interviews, uh, L-1B visa interviews, Aaron? Well, for the first part, if you think of a specialized knowledge worker, not everybody in your company is a specialized knowledge worker. It's usually a very reduced or smaller number that has unique skill sets or unique information that they picked up over a period of time. So if a company is a very large company and they have 100 or 200 people that actually qualify, even if their universe is two, three, four thousand, and it's actually a small percentage of the company, what happens is the consulate's not looking at the every employee of the company. They're looking at one after another after another of L-1B specialized knowledge uh, applications or visa visas coming in for these requests. And as the numbers start coming, it starts to raise their question as to whether they're bona fide um, uh, specialized knowledge L-1Bs and whether they can issue the visa itself. So that's one thing that we've absolutely seen and something that you have to kind of push for when that kind And what of are the specific sort of problems that, they, that, that they're faced by the L-1 visa applicants? Well, often they're questioned about their knowledge of a company's products or services. Uh, if the applicants can't answer the question satisfactorily, the visa may be denied. Uh, visa applicants need to be able to distinguish their knowledge from that of the average or common company employee. And a lot of time that has to do with the specific details of projects, of proprietary software, of things that they've used in the past within the company. So they really, and even though the law says it's only one year that the person needs to have worked abroad before coming to the U.S., uh, we have seen, and I'm sure you all have noticed, that they will actually deny or delay the approval of the L-1B or the L-1A, uh, but particularly the L-1B, if they feel that it's just about a year or two as opposed to five or six years. And so they're adding these requirements that are beyond and more than required by the law, and the denial on that basis is clearly illegal, can be challenged, um, especially if it's considered egregious and outrageous and completely um, inconsistent with what the law requires. Uh, but that's in their mind. Sometimes they don't articulate the reason, and sometimes they do. So if they do, then it's easier to sue them. The problem sometimes is they have this in their head, but they don't really necessarily share that specifically other than saying, well, gee, that seems awfully a really short time, just one year? How come they're sending you? So it can't be that special or unique in terms of gathering the knowledge. Aaron, what are the differences then between the L1A um, visas for the executives and managers from the special, you know, the, the skilled worker? Well, executives or managers have to show that they're managing or directing in a high level um, the the job duties that will be performed in the U.S. It, it's funny because the days of saying my manager is a visionary or he directs, guides, and instructs, uh, sets policy for the company, those days of using very broad and grandiose types of terms, uh, they're kind of gone. And the reason why is they're coming back and they're saying, okay, and what does he do with the other nine hours of the day? 
Uh, what they're looking for are details, details, details. What type of meetings do they attend? Uh, what types of decisions are they involved with? What exactly are they overseeing? What exactly are they doing? Do they have the right of f- hire and fire? How do they, do they do that? Are they determining impactful policies? What happens if a policy goes wrong? How do they go back and learn about that and implement changes and developments. It becomes all about the details to show that, no, it's not just a vision. It's not just a policy. It's not just a figurehead type of job, but an actual hands-on oversight on a very high level. And I think that's something that's new that we're seeing. And those questions are coming almost almost on every one of those types of cases. Okay. So if we can, again, sort of look at both the H1 and the L1 program, Brian, what are some of the issues that are constantly being asked? I think Aaron touched upon many of them right now, but you could just sort of go over what are some of the issues that are raised. We see certain questions asked over and over by consular officers. Some of them deal with either fraud issues or suspicions about employers. So the employee may be asked at the consular interview, how did you come to learn about your employer? Did you pay any money to a recruiter or did you pay any money for your H-1B process or your LCA process or your L process. They may ask, what's the interview process? They may ask for details. Did you do a phone interview? Did you meet with someone in person for your interview? Did you submit any documents? And then they also may ask specific questions about the worker's intended work in the U.S. and their biographic information. So they may ask, where are you going to work? Who is your manager going to be in the U.S.? Where did you graduate? When did you graduate? They may be looking to see, is there, are there fraudulent details on the diploma, on the mark sheets? It, it could go anywhere within the four corners of that H-1B petition because they have the PIM system, and they will verify information from CIS against what the worker is answering. But they, they are asking more and more about, was there some sort of money incentive for the person to gain a position in the U.S.? And was there money paid as part of the process for recruitment? It's becoming more frequent. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I know I don't need to say this or preach to the choir, but it seems like common sense. And you really tell people, you know, of course, we're all trying to make money and make a living and be profitable in our businesses. But for heaven's sake, you know, don't start taking money from your employees for what is clearly a violation under the H-1B laws and regulations um, and subject yourself to a breach uh, of your agreement to be in violation of the law. I tell people, you know, making a good living and saving money is fantastic, but sitting in a cooler, going to prison, going to jail to be cheap and to try to save money or to cut corners is really penny wise and pound foolish. And uh, I know that uh, maybe in other countries and other cultures, it's, you know, we are so used to trying to work around the system or figure out how to, you know, scam the system. It generally is not very helpful. It can have short time benefits and long term disadvantages uh, in this culture, especially where there's oodles and oodles of money that is being invested by the federal government in going after employers in hiring fraud FDNS agents. Uh, and, and so it's almost like they're searching for the needle in the haystack by trying to find fraud even where none exists. So if you're going to make it really easy for them by having violated law and taken money or done something, hopefully inadvertently, you are really exposing yourself, your business, your family 
to very unpleasant consequences. And I know I don't need to say this, but I just thought it was important to mention this because we do, unfortunately, from time to time, have businesses, companies, and employers that do some of these things, that look at shortcuts, that try to find uh, ways to save money. But in the long run, it's not going to be a saving. It's going to cost us, cost you 10 times more, a 1,000 times more, uh, if you're going to be separated from your family and be sitting in jail. So in, in that connection, how do security advisory opinions come into play, Aaron? Well, there is something that's called the technology alert list. And the technology alert list, what it has essentially is it focuses on sensitive technologies, technologies that potentially could be used for dual-use type of technologies, and other types of technologies that perhaps could be used potentially against the United States. If they see somebody that they have a question, if the person, what the person is doing could potentially be perceived as being on the technology alert list, what they'll do is delay the visa, issuance of the visa, and they'll request from the Department of State in Washington, D.C., an advisory opinion to confirm that it's okay to issue the visa and to be able to move forward. And these guys don't necessarily use a surgical tool when they're making these determinations. Um, for example, I've seen people with PharmD degrees who are coming and are going to be a pharmacist at a, a large, uh, um, um, you know, a large pharmacist, a pharmacy that has branches all over. Um, I've seen somebody like that get held up because of the potential for dual use, though none existed, and we were able to get that overcome. And there are all kinds of strange names like Visa Condor, Visa Donkey, you know, and each of them has, you know, Eagle. Uh, and it really, did, it's sort of looking at different issues. So the TAL or the technology alert list, the dual use technology is just one of the different issues. It could be a bunch of different, different reasons for a security advisory opinion or SAO as they call it. Um, and what if the person is stuck outside for several months? Is it possible for the employer to then say, you know what, I'm just going to withdraw this and just file a new petition for this employee and to heck with waiting? How does that work, Brian? It can. What sometimes happens is you'll, you may have an employee who travels overseas, thinks they're going for an easy stamp and they get a 221G. And what happens is that several, you know, two months go by, you know, the project may go away. If the person has a spouse in the U.S. and that spouse is also in H-1B status, that uh, you know, gives this person the option of withdrawing their H-1B visa application, which has been pending and has no, no, no clear end date, and then just applying for an H-4 in the normal process. And what we recommend in those situations is that the, the H-1B worker goes to their H-4 visa interview with a letter in hand that says, I want to withdraw my H-1B visa application. I'm applying for an H-4 based on my spouse's status. If you have that letter ready, if the consular officer says, well, wait, wait you, you have this 221G pending, that person can close the first case and then they can process the H-4 at the same time. And they usually will do that um, unless, of course, they feel that there was any fraud on the part of the employee, which could result in a 212A6 fraud denial. And then that person is, I don't want to say, going to be denied entry into the U.S. for life because there's supposed to be waivers and all of that. But in general, the consulate is not very... Uh, forgiving or kind or loving uh, when they believe someone has uh, committed fraud in violation of the law. So are there any special challenges for ID consulting companies? 
Well, I think the unavailability of, yes, I would say there are. And you look at, for example, unavailability of client contracts or client letters, uh, that's becoming increasingly problematic. If it's at all possible to get the, uh, the consultant to carry an original letter from the client on that company's letterhead, I find that's something that's very helpful. Um, if there's been a DOL investigation or any benching issue with the employer, uh, that many times can cause a 221G issue or a visa denial. It happens even if the investigation is over and even if they've made a final determination one way or another. Um, administrative processing delays that come up, they can take months to complete. You'd be better prepared, you would be better prepared if you carried all documents that are generally listed on the 221G requests and have them available for the initial visa interview just to try to avoid that, that additional delay in the process. Okay. And in terms of solutions, I mean, because if I'm an employer, I'm like, okay, I'm hearing all these problems. You know, what are my options? What are the solutions to uh, extensive delays that could take, you know, six months or longer? I think there's there's a couple of different ways to approach these delays. You could work through congressional offices, senatorial offices. You could contact the Small Business Administration. But ultimately, those things cannot force the Department of State to act on a case. And when delays are extreme and someone's been waiting six, seven months, there have been situations, and Murthy Law Firm has successfully done this, where you can file a writ of mandamus in the U.S. federal court in, in the U.S. state side, and that can put the pressure on the State Department to contact the embassy or the consulate and try to figure out why is this still delay happening. And it may, it may actually cause some cases to get resolved. It's, it's very cutting edge, but it has worked. Now, Brian, I heard something about this thing called, I don't know, consular non-reviewability or something. I'm just kidding. But there's clearly consular non-reviewability, which says lawsuits against the consulate generally don't work. Why would a writ of mandamus be something that might be a carved out exception? Because some some courts, and I know there's a decision out of California and a case out of Florida, some courts have taken the position that they're just asking, they're, they're forcing the State Department to do something that has a time frame involved. They're not telling the consular officer, you have to approve the visa. They're just saying this delay of two years for immigrant visa is too long. And then when you have a court look at it, if there's no good reason for that delay, that mystery processing, those cases sometimes work out. Uh, so a writ of mandamus is, is essentially asking the courts to tell a particular government agency not what decision to make, just you owe them a decision, you better make some kind of decision. And so it's just something that's different than saying we're reviewing any decision that you right. made. You're not saying it's an arbitrary denial. You're saying this case shouldn't die on the vine. If the 221G lasts for a year, case closes on its own, that's not fair. Okay, fair enough. And so I think that's a very good point that uh, we don't, nobody likes to spend the time, money, effort, energy suing the federal government, especially because we all know they have your mon tax money and my tax money, and that means they have a ton of money. So we end up, uh, you know, really We're using our money to defend our lawsuits. There you go. Uh, and that can be very frustrating because, you know, at the end of the day, you have a business to run as an employer to deal with your situations rather than be suing the government. But when it's excessively long and you need to do take action, it is a, certainly an option. And uh, we have been extremely successful in having the government, as, as Brian correctly pointed out, review it, look at it. And come back and actually say, oh, my God, 
If they're willing to sue, then clearly there's no fraud. Clearly it's a legitimate case. And I think it helps to lend credibility, if nothing else. And then they go back, look at it, and very often end up issuing the visa or approving the case with USCIS when multi law firm has been very successful in filing writs of mandamus. And by the way, many people think that these writs of mandamus are tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars as with the larger law firms. But in fact, we have a very, very simple, cost-effective, cost-efficient way of doing it at an incredibly nominal cost. It's almost like filing an H-1B petition, almost the same legal fees as well as most of our little complex H-1 petitions, which is, again, an unheard of uh, fee in terms of uh, filing litigation. Something for you all to keep in mind, whether you're an employer or trying to help your employee, etc. And so we, we would, would think it would be rem- we would be remiss if we didn't touch upon the immigrant visa issues at consulates, because there are problems similar to the 221G, uh, that there's 221Gs possible for immigrant visa or IV cases, as we call them. And we have seen them even with, um, you know, the 221Gs uh, with L1s, with METs, with the immigrant visa cases. It can be employment-based, family-based. Um, and there was something that came out fairly recently, which some of you may have seen in the past just few days on the multi-law firm website, um, and something that's been floating out there in an article that was in the Washington Post uh, on um, delays for certain applicants of certain nationalities from the Middle East, um, especially if they have Muslim last names or whatever. And so there have been questions about will it impact H-1s and L-1 visas. While there's nothing clear-cut and definite, I think it has shown a trend. There has been concerns. There have been concerns by the government. And we have seen some sort of a trend where there have been delays more so with people with sometimes, unfortunately, common last names um, in from primarily countries that have a very large volume of people uh, of the Islamic faith. Uh, and while it's clearly illegal, and I know the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, fi- filed a lawsuit against the USCIS demanding action, I think there is some perception, and it comes back to the three issues that I talked about earlier, which is uh, the government official feeling that it is their moral and legal duty to protect the American worker, to keep our country safe and secure, uh, and to prevent fraud from happening. And so the security issue is always uh, somewhere at the back of the uh, of every uh, uh, government officer's mind uh, since September the 11th. And so we need to be more mindful and sensitive of those issues when our employees uh, happen to be of a particular faith or from a particular part of the world. Um, Again, we have dealt with these issues and we would be happy to help you try to find solutions either through consultations or filing writs or processing your cases and monitoring your employees. Because one of the other things we can do is actually keep a really good track of which employees, when their expiration dates, when they expire, H-4 expiration dates, a lot of the problems that you end up finding in your company and your issues when you try to do it either in-house or through in-house person who is not a lawyer, we find we are trying to clean up the mess, which is, it's, what do they say, prevention is always cheaper than cure. Uh, So in conclusion, I want to say we're always honored and delighted to have you participate and make time in the middle of your busy day. 
to be a valuable member of the Multi Law Firm Monthly Teleconference. We hope that we have been able to share with you some of the uh, concerns and some of the issues that come up and solutions that can help you to start thinking of how to increase your chances for the approval and minimize the chance for an investigation of fraud denial or a delay. Um, we understand the importance of running your business successfully and profitably. And with the amazing multi-law firm team, our family, as I call it here, we would be honored and delighted to help process your H1s, your L1s, your green cards or whatever help you need. And we're always sensitive about the 30 to 45 minute deadline. And I see we're at the 43 minutes. So we are so going to wrap it up. But thank you very much. Um, and we will continue to help you and save money for you and take care of you as we are the world's number one immigration law firm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.